This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Jeffrey Larch. He's a diagnostic microbiologist and research scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey National Wildlife Health Center in Madison, Wisconsin. We'll be discussing the history of snake fungal disease in wild snake populations through museum specimens. Welcome, Dr. Lorch. Thank you for having me. Okay, to start with, what is ophidiomycosis? Ophidiomycosis is a, a scientific term that we use to refer to a disease in snakes that's caused by this fungus, Ophidiomyces ophiodiacola. So it's, it's more commonly referred to as snake fungal disease. Um, and the fungus that causes or infects um, snakes is primarily limited to the skin, but in severe cases, it can cause the animals to look quite disfigured. This is really strange stuff that you've done here. You examined snakes in museums dating back to 1945. How did you even think to do that, and why did you? Yeah, so aphidiomycosis is a disease that has been described fairly recently. Um, and what we wanted to do was figure out if, if the disease was something new or if it had been around longer and was maybe simply overlooked. Um, and for many other wildlife diseases, people have turned to museum specimens or museum collections to answer these sorts of questions. And so we wanted to do the same. And should the average listener be concerned about this disease? That's a really good question. Um, as you know, snakes are probably some of the most malign animals in the world. Um, but they're actually very beneficial. Uh, a lot of snakes eat pest species like rodents, which can damage food or destroy crops um, and also carry diseases so that can infect humans. So I think there was um, a study conducted where people looked at the um, effect of, of timber rattlesnakes um, and Lyme disease and, and demonstrated essentially that um, timber rattlesnakes consume enough mice to potentially have an impact on um, the transmission of, of Lyme's disease. So like all living things, they, they play an important role in the ecosystem, um, and any negative aspects that we associate with them are, are far outweighed by the benefits they provide. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I have um, a couple friends that they just randomly kill every snake they see in their yard, even the little beneficial ones, and I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. But, um, yeah. Uh, so what makes a fungal infection different from viruses and pathogens? On the most basic level, fungi are, are a very different type of organism than, say, viruses or bacteria, which also cause diseases. Um, but really, it's how these pathogens behave that's important when we um, talk about disease. And fungal pathogens um, tend to be able to infect a wide variety of different hosts. They're not as specific um, to a given host species, like viruses, for example, often are. Um, and so in the case of, of snake fungal disease, for instance, um, it seems that nearly all snake species are capable of being infected um, with Ophidiomyces. Also, fungal pathogens have a tendency to persist in the environment for long periods of time, um, even when there's no host around to infect. And, and some of these fungi will even grow or replicate in the soil without a host. So this means that animals like snakes can actually become infected uh, just by crawling over contaminated surfaces. They don't need to, 
to come into contact with a, another sick snake um, to develop disease. And, and so I kind of like to think of it as telling people to imagine that um, something like a cold virus could survive for months or years um, on a surface like a door handle and then just imagine how much more prevalent um, colds would be or how much more frequently you would get sick. And then finally, it seems as though many individuals don't necessarily develop immunity to fungal pathogens in the same way that they do to viruses and, and bacteria. Um, and this means that you can actually become infected um, time and again by the same fungus. Um, in fact, there has never really been a successful vaccine developed um, for a fungal disease. And so all these factors combined can make fungal diseases a lot more difficult to manage um, in wild animal populations. I know I've said this before in other podcasts about fungal diseases, but of all the types of things that they scare me the most just because of everything you just said. Um, I was just going to say, luckily, so far, most fungal diseases in humans have been limited to immunocompromised um, patients. It's, but yeah, being an animal that's more susceptible to fungal diseases, even if you're healthy, is, seems like it can be very scary. Yeah. So we often hear about diseases in animals um, such as bats or pigs or chickens. Do uh, snakes have fewer diseases or do we just know less about them? Yeah, if anything, I'd say snakes probably have more diseases, but oh. we just haven't studied them enough um, to document what diseases they get. Um, and this is really because we humans don't have a long history of living side by side with snakes or having them in captivity like um, we have with things like pigs and, and chickens. So reptiles really only became popular as pets in the 1990s. Um, and most of the diseases in snakes that we know about were discovered after that time. So a lot less of a history um, with humans than, than some of our domestic animals. And then also, mammals and birds are warm-blooded, and their high body temperature actually prevents a lot of fungi um, that might normally be present in the environment from um, being able to grow in their bodies. But snakes are cold-blooded, so their, their body temperature is, is more similar to that of their surroundings. Um, and so what that means is that under the right conditions, many more of these fungi or bacteria that um, might just be in the environment can opportunistically infect them. That's a really interesting point. I actually never thought about that before. Um, so how and when was this disease actually discovered then? Uh, Phidiomycosis was first discovered in wild snakes in 2008 in Illinois. And it was found in a species called the Eastern Massasauga rattlesnake. Um, and that species is very rare. And so it, its population was being closely monitored. And researchers that were monitoring that population began to find these snakes that had horribly disfigured faces um, and would inevitably die um, as a result of those infections. And they eventually attributed um, it to the Ophidiomyces fungus. Retrospectively, we, we now know that Ophidiomycosis has been found in captive snakes dating back to at least um, the 1980s as well. So since the discovery of this um, fungus in snakes, where has it been found? Yeah, so Ophidiomyces is now found in wild snakes across much of the eastern U.S., um, as well as parts of Canada. 
And then as the disease gained more attention, people began looking for it in other places. So we now know that Ophidiomyces um, causes disease in wild snakes in Europe, um, as well as in Taiwan. Um, and I'm sure if people looked in, in more places, we would find it um, probably throughout Eurasia. Um, it would be interesting to, to look in other continents as well and, and see just how broadly distributed the fungus is. But there hasn't been a lot of effort put into surveillance um, for the fungus outside of North America. Uh, is there a particular kind of snake that affects more than others? You know, for example, more common among a species or a ge- geographic location or wild snakes or pet snakes? or Yeah, so as I mentioned before with um, fungi having a, a broad host range, um, we do believe that Ophidiomyces can infect nearly all species of snakes. That doesn't necessarily mean that... Um, all species are equally susceptible. So maybe some species are more likely to become infected or will develop more severe disease if they become infected. Um, Ophidiomycosis has been reported to be more common in aquatic snake species, for example. Um, And there's also anecdotal reports that rattlesnakes may get more severe disease um, when they're infected. But this is something that we we need to sort of look into more. as far as distribution, um, in, we see most cases in the eastern half of the U.S. Um, it's possible that the fungus occurs in the western U.S., um, or is more, I should say more widespread in the western U.S., um, but people haven't looked there as much as they have in the eastern part of the country. And then as far as wild versus pet snakes, I don't really know the answer to that question because there isn't a good reporting system for captive snakes, and our focus has primarily been on on wild animals. But um, as I mentioned, we do know that captive snakes can get ophidiomycosis, and it actually has been found in captive snakes on several continents. So you mentioned um, distortion, like physical distortion. Uh, what other signs of infection do snakes um, show or get? I'd say the most consistent um, sign of infection are these crusty areas of discolored skin. Uh, People often describe them as sort of looking like scabs. Technically, that's not um, what they are, but they look very much like scabs. Um, But the signs can be highly variable, sort of depending on what stage of infection the snake is in or how it's responding to that infection. So some snakes will look um, more like they have blisters on the skin. Some will um, have ulcers on the skin. And then it's really just in these sort of more severe cases that um, snakes might look disfigured. Um, when they do get infections on the head, that's sort of where it's most conspicuous. Often it'll um, affect the eye, so the eye will be crusted over. Um, and then once they're infected, especially if it's a, a severe infection, the snakes will sometimes refuse to eat or have a hard time finding food, so they can become very thin. Um, and then in the, these sort of most extreme cases, the fungus can actually penetrate down through the skin um, into the underlying muscle and sometimes even into bone or other internal organs. So, uh, Dr. Lorch, is there some kind of treatment or a way to treat snakes, wild snakes, for this? Yeah, so some people have um, tried using antifungals um, to treat snakes and have reported um, that snakes are able to recover, but I haven't seen 
really good, um, I should say, controlled designs that sort of say exactly what the efficacy of those treatments are. Um, Many snakes can recover just based on supportive care um, in captivity, and many snakes with mild infections probably recover on their own um, without any sort of intervention. I would imagine administration to wild snakes would be somewhat problematic also, like trying to do oral rabies vaccines for raccoons and stuff. Yeah, and so a lot of the time we don't really, because snakes are so difficult to find, they're so secretive um, in the wild, and because there's this ability to potentially be reinfected um, by a fungal pathogen, we don't necessarily consider treatments to be good management techniques in wild systems. So for highly endangered um, species where every individual counts or for captive animals, um, you know, treatments might come into play. But when we talk about population management, it often isn't a very feasible approach. So back to the public health aspect of this, um, you know, people can get salmonella from all kinds of reptiles, among other things, but, and I know snakes are one of them. Can people get this from snakes? Ophidiomycosis. To date, there haven't been any cases of, of humans developing ophidiomycosis, at least not to my knowledge. Um, and this includes people that frequently handle sick snakes. Um, and it's, it's likely that the fungus isn't capable of infecting people. Um, and that's based on the fact that the fungus isn't able to grow um, at temperatures as high as, as the human body. So um, it seems like that is probably a, a pretty significant barrier for its ability to serve as a human pathogen. In your study, uh, or for your study, you examined snakes from the eastern U.S. that were preserved in museums. What was your initial goal? We really wanted to get a better idea of, of whether this disease was something new um, or if it's been around for a long time and was simply overlooked. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because the way in which you manage a wildlife disease um, is often pretty dependent on on whether that pathogen um, is new to the area and you have a naive host population um, or whether it's been present there for a long time, which might signal that um, other stressors are are responsible um, and which allows you to sort of focus on maybe some of those other stressors for disease management rather than just uh, trying to control spread. So how are these snakes preserved that you looked at? Yeah, so the snakes we examined were preserved in either alcohol or a chemical called formalin. Um, some people might know that better as formaldehyde. And and these were essentially pickled specimens, so they were stored in liquid within glass jars. What museums did you look at? Uh, so we worked at a museum in Kentucky called the Moorhead uh, Museum, and then um, most of the specimens that we got that were suitable for this came from the University of Wisconsin Zoological um, Museum. And that was simply because the, the specimens from the University of Wisconsin have been stored in ethanol, which is more conducive um, for the types of analyses we did, whereas the samples from Moorhead had been preserved long-term in formalin. Were you able to visually identify the snakes with this disease, or did you have other methods? And if you did, what were they? Yeah, so we initially started by just examining the snakes for skin lesions that are typical of ophidiomycosis. Um, But one issue with that is, is that 
these signs that I described are not specific to this disease. So there's other things that can cause snakes to have um, these types of, of skin lesions. So in order to, to officially diagnose ophidiomycosis, we need to examine the skin microscopically, and then we also need to detect the fungus. So to detect the fungus, um, we, use a, we look for the fungus's DNA using a laboratory technique called polymerase chain reaction. And to do this and to, to look at the, the skin under the microscope, we actually need to remove part of the infected skin from the specimen. And this is called destructive sampling because you're sort of mutilating the specimen um, in the process of, of doing that. But luckily, the museums we worked with were very excited about this project, and they allowed us to, to do this destructive sampling on a subset of, of the specimens that we looked at. And, and you mentioned lesions. What exactly do you mean by lesions? Are they like cuts or scrapes or scabby bits? or What, what do they look like? Lesion is just a medical term that essentially means that there's some sort of damage to the tissue. So cuts and scrapes are, are types of lesions. Um, the type of lesion we're looking for would be ones that have an infectious cause, not a mechanical cause, such as a, a scrape or a, a cut. So, um, again, sort of these thickened areas of skin or, or crusty skin were the most common lesion that we saw in these preserved snakes. Was there still DNA in these specimens? I mean, it seems like to get it out, uh, and there'd only be tiny amounts, that must have been difficult. Um, some of the specimens we sampled did actually have suitable DNA. Um, others did not. So as I mentioned, um, samples that were stored in alcohol were the ones that um, gave us the, the amount of DNA that was needed to, um, to do our analysis, whereas those in, in formalin did not have any detectable DNA in them. Um, the amount of DNA is very small, um, but we're still able to detect it with that technique that I mentioned, the polymerase chain reaction, um, which essentially helps amplify the amount of, of DNA in the sample. Um, and we get that, that DNA out by um, removing the alcohol from the tissue, and then we grind up that lesion tissue, um, both mechanically and then digest it using enzymes, and that helps release the DNA. And what did you find from all of this? Well, we're able to, to diagnose snake fungal disease 55 years um, earlier than the previous reports. Um, and this was in snakes collected as far away as, as Florida and Wisconsin. So it appears that the disease was actually quite widespread in the eastern U.S. decades before the disease was officially described. Um, and in addition to that, many more snakes we examined microscopically looked like they had ophidiomycosis, um, but we weren't able to get enough DNA from those specimens to necessarily confirm uh, that the fungus was present. And beyond that, we, we found even more snakes that had lesions that we did not um, destructively sample because we wanted to preserve um, those specimens for future use um, at the museum. So um, what we found was were quite a few specimens that had what we thought was, was snake fungal disease and were able to confirm that um, in a small set of them. Do these results tell us anything about the origins of this disease? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, you know, the way we approach management of diseases often sort of varies based on whether something um, is introduced into a naive population or whether it's been present 
um, for a long time. And, and these results tell us that um, Ophidiomyces has at least been present in, in North America for, for several decades. Um, that doesn't mean that it could not have been introduced to North America. It just means that it happened before we began noticing um, problems associated with the infections. Um, so it could mean that the fungus has always been here, but um, like I said, we really need to sort of look at more specimens to get an idea um, of whether it, it's been present for, for longer than um, the 55 years that we're able to go back and, and confirm. Uh, so in your opinion, are there any environmental implications for phidiomycosis being around, either new or always? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and a major issue we face in trying to, to look at the impacts of disease on, on snakes is that we really just have no long-term data um, for most snake populations. Um, we do know that, that snakes have been declining worldwide for a variety of different reasons. Um, but in North America, we don't really necessarily know if those declines are, are disease-related. Um, we do know that some snake populations are experiencing negative impacts from um, ophidiomycosis, but that really hasn't been tested um, over a, sort of on a broader scale among snakes as a whole. Um, and then we also don't know what sort of domino effect that will have. So if you start um, removing snakes from the ecosystem where they're not just provide benefits to humans, but are also serve as an important food source um, for many other animals like birds and, and mammals. We just don't know what the impact of that could be. How will these results you found be used going forward? Well, I think our work is really just a first step in trying to figure out what the origins of Ophidiomyces are. Um, so we're hoping that other research groups might examine museum specimens from outside of eastern North America to give us a better idea of where the fungus occurs and when it, it started showing up in a given region. And that's what's really nice about these museum specimens is that not only are we able to, to get sort of a, a geographical coverage, but we're also able to, to look temporally to get an idea of, of maybe when something began to show up in a, in a particular place. And we sampled a relatively small number of snakes in our study um, so by looking at larger museum collections and, and more specimens, it might actually be possible to determine things like how the disease has varied over time, um, whether it's become more prevalent, um, more severe, that sort of thing, um, which snake species might are more likely to be infected. Um, and then, as I mentioned, if, if the pathogen was introduced to North America, when that introduction may have occurred. So when do we start seeing it show up in museum specimens? And then in what regions does it show up first and, and you know, from where in those regions might it spread? Uh, why did you pick specimens from 1945? Why that date? So we did actually go back further, um, but we weren't able to, to sort of find the combination of factors we needed to confirm a diagnosis prior to 1945. Um, either DNA was too degraded in some of the older specimens, um, or the lesions were just so small that we couldn't do multiple types of sampling um, from those snakes. So it's possible that um, it, it had occurred prior to, to 1945. Also, the, 
we're sort of limited in what was present in the collections that we looked at. Um, if we went to larger museums that maybe have snake specimens going back further, um, maybe we would have found cases that uh, predated 1945. What were the challenges of working with museum specimens um, rather than, say, live animals? Yeah, so working with museum specimens, first of all, is great because you don't need to worry about um, causing harm or disturbing live animals. Um, you can examine specimens from various time periods. Um, but museum specimens do pose some challenges. Um, mainly, many specimens um, are very precious. And so with, with the type of destructive sampling that I mentioned earlier, we weren't able to um, get confirmed diagnoses for all of the specimens we saw that we believed um, may have had ophidiomycosis. Because you do want to preserve those, those specimens for other people to use. Um, for future use. You can't go back and, and get more specimens from 1945. What you sort of have in, in collections is, is, you know, all you'll ever have. Um, also, it can be a lot difficult, a lot more difficult to get enough suitable DNA from preserved specimens versus if I were to get a fresh snake, for example. And that does limit a lot of the analyses, analyses we can do. Um, so we can detect Ophidiomyces in these samples, but we often can't, you know, look at what particular strains of Ophidiomyces they may be um, or that sort of thing because there just isn't enough DNA that we can recover from those samples with our current methods um, to do that. And then finally, there's often a lot of bias in museum collections. So um, a particular collection may be dominated with a particular snake species. Um, that was collected from a certain location where a, a particular study was done. So um, it can often be hard to, to get a good balanced study design um, when you're using these opportunistically collected museum specimens. Have museum specimens been used to retroactively identify any other diseases that you know of? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So museum specimens are really valuable resources and they're used um, in these types of studies quite frequently. And that includes both um, for studies on human diseases as well as diseases in animals. Um, so, for example, scientists have used museum specimens to sequence the entire genome of the bacteria that caused the Black Death in Europe. Um, and that helped them sort of compare it with what that bacteria looks like now and um, whether they thought it, it might be more pathogenic um, during that period than it is now. Um, I guess more related to the topic at hand, scientists have also used museum specimens to study other fungal diseases of wildlife, such as chytrid fungus and amphibians um, and white-nose syndrome in bats. And in, in both of those instances, museum specimens helped to identify the likely origin of those fungal pathogens. And, and you said that, that there was no viable... Um DNA before 1945, but that's a really long time ago as it is. Um, why do you think the fungus um, survived so long in the specimens? I guess the first thing to point out is the fungus is not actually alive um, in these museum specimens. It's the DNA um, that we're finding. And, and DNA is actually a very stable um, molecule under the right conditions. And one of the things that helps preserve DNA quite well um, is alcohol. And so these specimens that had been preserved 
um, in stored long-term in alcohol actually um, have a much better chance of, of yielding DNA than um, specimens that might be of similar age but stored um, by other methods. Tell us about your job, what you do, where you work, how you got there, and what you like most about it. Sure. So um, I'm a microbiologist at the U.S. Geological Survey National Wildlife Health Center. Um, And our center is a federal institution that's dedicated to wildlife disease detection, control, and prevention in the U.S. Um, So here I do both disease investigation work, which involves helping to identify the causes of, of wildlife die-off events. Um, and then I also do research into various aspects of, of wildlife diseases. Um, so I've always been passionate about nature, um, and I combined my undergraduate degrees, which were in microbiology um, and wildlife ecology, so that I could focus on disease issues. And that sort of um, came about having taken some courses where we talked about wildlife conservation and it became clear that disease was quickly becoming a much bigger factor um, in, in species conservation than it had been even a few decades ago, um, primarily because humans are, are moving disease agents around the world much more quickly than um, we ever have. And so that really sort of solidified my, my desire to, to move forward and, and focus on um, wildlife conservation from the standpoint of um, trying to, to manage disease. And as far as what I enjoy most about my job, I guess I would say um, I really enjoy the part where trying to figure out um, how the pieces of the puzzle fit together when we're conducting those challenging investigations into new wildlife diseases. Um, and then also helping management agencies come up with ways of protecting wildlife from disease threats. Well, on a personal level, do you have a pet snake? (laughs) I currently do not have a pet snake. You currently do not. Does that mean you did at one point or you're going to get one? (laughs) (laughs) I've had snakes in the past. Um, I've always been interested in in reptiles. Um, So as a kid, I've had some some pet snakes. But no, currently I I don't have um, any pet snakes. I actually wouldn't mind having a pet snake, but I cannot feed a pet snake a live mouse or even a frozen mouse. So it's sort of a non-starter, but I think they're very appealing. <laughs> there's snakes that um, eat all kinds of different things. Um, really? Yeah, well, I mean, there's none that there's none that eat vegetables, but... <laughs> well, yeah. There's some snakes that eat insects. Um, most of the captive species, I think, are mouse eaters. It's a little bit easier um, to feed them, but garter snakes will eat worms and fish and um, all kinds of stuff. I used to have some uh, lizards, I guess they were, that ate um, crickets, but oh my goodness, those things would hop all over the place and then they get out and they have little crickets hopping all over my house. And yeah, and then <laughs> it gets under your refrigerator and keeps chirping at night and <laughs> you can't get it, yes. but it keeps you up. <laughs> Exactly. They're just startling when they hop up at you unexpectedly. I was just going to say, when you're talking about snakes um, and what they eat, you know, snakes are a pretty diverse group of of animals, and some of them are really specialized. And one of the species that we work with feeds exclusively on crayfish. Um, And in fact, some people say it, they eat almost exclusively freshly molted crayfish because 
the ones that haven't freshly molted have too hard of a shell. Oh, jeez. So <laughs> it's, they've definitely evolved into some pretty specialized niches. That's really interesting. Can you imagine the enormous um, aggravation of trying to keep freshly molted crayfish for your snake? <laughs> yeah, that, that species hasn't made it into the pet trade. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Dr. Loach. This has been a very interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the July 2021 article, Confirmed Cases of Ophidiomycosis in Museum Specimens from as Early as 1945, United States, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.